following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Today we begin the conclusion of Romans. The conclusion of Romans. And today in Romans 15 verses 14 to 21, it explains to us how we are to understand gospel ministry. How we are to understand gospel ministry. So if you're able, please stand with me as I read God's word. I'm going to read Romans 15, verses 14 to 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are coming now to the end parts of Romans. We've got like four sermons left in Romans. And Romans is one of the most comprehensive Bible books. The scope is sweeping. The effects are legendary, the the theological peaks are gargantuan, and there are some very, very practical exhortations in the last chapters, chapters 12 through 16. Now, it makes me sad sometimes because some people look at the book of Romans and they say, well, it's just a systematic theology book. It's just about primarily teaching doctrine. It makes me sad because foremost in, in Romans is the idea not just of of the primary uh, theological text in the Bible, which it is, it is first a highly personal letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians. And he taught them truth. He reminded them of what they knew. He exhorted them to engage the unity that Christ bought. He, He pointed them to engage in the ministry that the Spirit of God empowers. It was a very personal letter, and so I would actually be personally crushed if you came away from Romans at Grace Church of Orange, this two years plus sermon series of almost a hundred sermons, and I'd be crushed if you came away just saying, wow, I know a lot more now. You know, knowing facts without living truth betrays, and what I want is I want you to live the gospel truth you know. I want to live the gospel truth I know. It's not just about knowing facts, it's about living the gospel. So I would be thrilled if you came away from Romans loving Jesus Christ more deeply. 
that you would actually come away from a study in the book of Romans and say, wow, I love Jesus more, and I am grasping Christ-centered doctrine more fully, and I am, as a result, resting upon Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency more. That I am actually understanding, and, and then I am actually engaging in consistent Christ-centered ministry. This passage talks about Christ-centered ministry. I want us to come away from this series going, wow, we are going to be more engaged in Christ-centered gospel ministry that's founded on the substitutionary, devil-crushing, shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. Because this passage we look at today, right here near the end of Romans, helps us understand gospel ministry. Now, a lot of people say, oh, I know what that is. Really? We shall see. We shall see. So at this point in Romans, you've got the uh, primarily uh, theological teachings have, have ended. Uh, now Paul is dealing with ministry concerns. Next, he's going to go into some personal plans. After that, he's going to give greetings in the remainder and, and some warnings. He's saying, as he gets to near the end, here's why I wrote Romans to a church I didn't start and a church that I've never visited. And significantly, he explains gospel ministry. He explains his ministry. As we go on through the last part of this letter, we'll see the future plans that he had in place at that point, and then we'll see him ask the Roman Christians to actually pray for the ministry in Jerusalem. And then he gives these concluding greetings and warnings and Praise to God. But right here near the end, he is continuing on the theme that has gone all the way through. It runs like a golden thread through Romans. This theme of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel through faith in Christ so that people would be unashamed of the gospel, that they would be uncondemned by their sins, that they would be unconformed to the world. These are God's goals for believers and then what we've been seeing quite clearly as we go through these exhortations near the, near the end of the book, that our unity in Christ drives our ministry for Christ. Our unity in Christ drives our ministry for Christ. And Paul is saying here, gospel ministry is absolutely essential. Think about it, in God's economy, if it were not for the spirit-indwelt church, gospel ministry doesn't happen. Gospel ministry, it must be understood. Some people go, oh, yeah, I know what gospel ministry is. It's a, it's a complex, intricate web of, of all these plans and, and layers of organization. In fact, some churches and some organizations that are committed to gospel ministry get so focused on their plans and their layers of organization that they forget about the gospel. Now, to other people, they say, well, you know, gospel ministry is no more than one Christian just going out and giving out the gospel to someone else on their own, when the opportunity arises, in their own time. Paul wants us to understand gospel ministry. What we see in this passage is that it is necessary for Christians to solidly grasp and understand. So it's necessary for Christians, and, and what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who's been born again, by the Spirit of God, regenerated by God, that they've been called by God to belong to Christ, they've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
And as a result, they're gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve God's purposes, to, go, to serve God's providentially orchestrated purposes. And so to do that, you've got to solidly grasp this idea of gospel ministry. What is it? What does it include? What does it entail? Because you've got to understand it if you're going to engage in it. And so this passage gives us a unique insight of Paul, who really lays out a floor plan for Christ-exalting gospel ministry by giving us four pillars of gospel ministry. Four pillars of gospel ministry. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, the first two, I think, get largely ignored and, and kind of swept on, you know, off to the side in, in a lot of people's ideas of, of ministry and gospel ministry. And then the last two are like, yeah, sure, but these are hard to do. So let's look at the first pillar. The first pillar is this. It is about preparing Christ's witnesses. The first pillar of gospel ministry is this idea of preparing Christ's witnesses. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. And by the way, it's accomplished all by pure grace. All by pure grace. Here's what Paul says. Verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. When he says my brothers, he means my brothers and sisters, my Christian uh, fellow workers, and he says, I am satisfied about you. Literally, I am persuaded, convinced, I am confident about you that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, it's interesting that in verse 13, he prayed, and now he's basically saying, and the prayer is answered. Uh, he's thinking of the community as a whole, and he's not saying they're perfectly good. He's not saying that they know everything perfectly. He's not flattering them. He's not buttering them up. What he's thinking of is their spiritual maturity. They are growing in Christ. He is writing to a people who know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it transforms. I hope you know that. I hope you know that the gospel actually transforms lives. I hope that your life has been transformed and continues to be transformed. You don't just get to a certain part and go, well, I'm done. God's done with me. I get to cruise now for the rest of the time. The power of God for salvation, the gospel, transforms lives. And so he says, I'm confident about you that you are full of goodness. He's talking about Christian character. That they hate evil and they love what is good. That they love righteousness. He says, you're full of all knowledge. That's close personal knowledge that's experiential knowledge that's not just head knowledge you actually are living this this is about sound doctrine and it, what it's showing us is that truth and virtue is inseparable you can't just say i believe something and not live something full of goodness filled with all knowledge he is persuaded he is affectionate about them he loves his brothers and sisters in christ just like we are to to be with one another like i i love this church i love the people in this church and 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 we can say wow Praise God that you are full of goodness and knowledge. What he's telling them is, Jesus lives in you. Jesus lives in you, and the word of God has changed you and is changing you. Praise God. I hope you can grasp that as a believer that you're like, wow, if I'm a believer, Jesus lives in me, and he is changing me by the Spirit using the word in my life. And you can actually see progress, little, little by little. Because he says to them, I am so confident about you that I know that you can actually instruct one another. It's a great word. 
this word for instruct, it's the Greek word nutheteo, and it's where we get our word nuthetic from, where we, this idea of nuthetic counseling in, in the whole context of biblical counseling. And this word, instruct, translated instruct here, means to admonish, it means to exhort, it means to encourage, and to even advise or warn. Like to say to someone, there's a pit over here that's really deep, don't fall in it, it'll kill you. Like to warn someone. So this idea of, of instruct here is to appeal to a person's mind when there is opposition going on. Now here are these Christians in Rome who are living in a hostile environment. The culture is hostile to the gospel. Sound familiar? And he's appealing to their minds where opposition is present. It's where you lead someone away from a false way. This is the idea behind instruct. You lead someone away from danger by warning them, by instructing them, by teaching them, by encouraging them, by, con- by saying this conduct even that you're involved in needs to be corrected. You shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing that. So he's saying, I'm confident that you're able to do this with one another. This word for instruct can signify preaching in the New Testament and also can signify personal counseling. In this context, it means personal counseling. And what what it's pointing to is that this is the responsibility of every believer, not just the Roman believers, but us as well, that every believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to encourage and edify other believers. This is our responsibility. We're equipped by God, we're empowered by the Spirit of God, and we have Bibles in hand, and so we do what what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. We believe it and we practice it. That all scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we would be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's plan for every Christian, that we would actually believe the Bible is powerful and profitable and that fellow Christians would come alongside other Christians to help. So when he says you're able also to to instruct one another, he is talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, just like it says in In chapter 15, verse 4, what does it say there to us? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Jay Adams wrote a classic book called Competent to Counsel, tagline, Intro to Nuthetic Counseling, and where he basically laid out the process of applying the Bible to the process of counseling people, helping people, instructing people. Now, when he used this word, when Paul used this word instruct here, he is using a family word. Now, when he says, I am persuaded of, about you, brothers and sisters, then he uses a, a family word, instruct. He uses it also in 1 Corinthians 4.14, when he said this, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to counsel you, to instruct you, to confront you, literally, as my beloved children. The family word. And this this word instruct has three aspects to it. That you would actually care about someone so much. You would have a concern. That's the first aspect. And that you would have such a concern that you would actually confront 
not in a negative way, but actually to help them, and that that would hopefully point them to change. There's the three aspects. You, you, you have concern, so you confront in order to bring about change. That's nuthetic counseling. We talk about biblical counseling, really admonishing counseling. It's face-to-face, one-on-one care and love of one believer to another to bring about the change that God intends in their life. Not the change that you think should happen, not your agenda for their life, but what would be honoring to God. And so he tells them, you're filled and you're able. I think that's kind of interesting. It's like, so why the need to write Romans? <laughs> if, they, if they've got it all figured out, what's the point? Remember, we read the Bible in context. to give you a really simple, basic way of handling the scriptures. Read it in context. What's the immediate context here? The context of verse 14. It isn't systematic theology, though Romans is filled with a lot of great doctrine that they would use to help one another. But the specific topic of the preceding section here is what to do in matters of conscience. The stuff the Bible doesn't say, you know, don't do this or you have to do that. It's the debatable things. It's the, the things that are morally indifferent. It's, it's where we have freedom. Well, God has given us freedom to make choices. And what Paul is, is not saying here, he's not saying, hey, look, you have all understanding of justification, sanctification, and glorification. You know it all. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I am confident that you're going to respond well to the, exhort- the exhortations that I gave you, the things I told you. I'm confident that you're able to, to counsel and to care and to confront one another regarding these things, that the strong would not despise the weak, that the weak would not condemn the strong, that, that, that the church would be faithful and, and thoughtful and careful with one another. This is what he's saying here. In verse 15, he says, on some points, I have written you very boldly. But notice what he says, by way of reminder. Everybody needs reminding. And he says, it's because of the grace of God given to me. That's not saving grace. That's his his, uh, grace as an apostle. But Paul had exhorted them very strongly at times. He, He didn't want them, though, to misinterpret the exhortations. And he's saying, I've written boldly. It doesn't mean, you know, they're deficient. It doesn't mean that they're... They're doing everything wrong. He's reminding them of truth they already knew. This is what we do when we open up our Bibles and and read them. This is what we do when we listen to sermons. We get reminded often of truth we already know. And the the saddest Christians, the, the, the people that make me the saddest are the people who think they know it all and think they've got it all wired and don't need to hear anything else from anybody. Part of Christian teaching is literally stirring up by way of reminder. 2 Timothy and Titus and Hebrews and 2 Peter and Jude all say that. And think about it. Paul didn't start the church in Rome. He wasn't their primary teacher. Uh, and it, it startles me. It's awesome how many people he lists in chapter 16 that he wants to connect with. But he's giving them reminders. Every Christian needs to be reminded of truths they already know, but we can easily neglect, we can easily forget. This is pointing to Christians actually being in accountable relation with one another where literally someone can actually come up to you and talk to you about something in your life because you know people in the church well enough to be talked to about something in your life and that you would actually be correctable. Think about it. Are you approachable and correctable? 
or can no one tell you anything? If you're walking around saying, Jesus is my boss, and no one else is, you're scary. Are we accountable with one another? Are we correctable with one another? Are we teachable? Can we actually learn from one another? This is what Paul is pointing to here. Like, be close enough to people that they can actually tell you the truth without being afraid of how you're going to respond or reject. And he says it's because of the grace gift. Again, not saving grace, but his apostleship. And I know that many of us want to just jump in and do something good for God. But we forget the entire Christian life is one of preparation. We, like, we think of it in, in terms of school a lot, right? Well, I'm out of school now and I'm not going back. I learned everything I needed to know. That's not how life is. Life is on-the-job training all the time. We forget that the entire Christian life is one of preparing for what's next. On-the-job training, God teaching us and, and even prodding us and, and using others in our lives and shaping us and molding us and changing us. This is continuing education. Every Christian should be involved in this continuing education. It's called sanctification. As disciples, lifelong learners, always learning, always preparing. The story isn't over yet. You don't get to a point in your Christian life and you're like, I'm going to cruise now. No, it, the, the Bible calls for perseverance and endurance. You got you to keep going. I remember one time I went to uh, see a friend of mine who was acting in a play. And I took one of my daughters with me and we drove to this uh, theater, that kind of a community type theater thing. And we're watching my friend in this play and he had a prominent part in it. And the play was going really long. It was like 9 o'clock and it wasn't intermission yet. And I'm just like, I don't know if we can stay the whole time. <laughs> and so my friend's in this play and right before intermission, his, his character gets shot. And I'm like, yes, that's my out. I'm going home. <laughs> he died. He's the only one I'm coming to see anyway, right? So the next time I see him, I say, good job in the play. Bummer that they killed you off. He's like, you didn't stay, did you? <laughs> it's like, I wasn't dead. That was the cliffhanger before intermission. So I learned my lesson. Except then this, this season, UCLA football, down 32 points in the third quarter. I'm like, I'm going to bed. I, I need to preach tomorrow morning. UCLA comes back and wins 67 to 63, football game. You've got to stay for the second half, folks. Don't skip or cruise through the second half of life. There is more to come. A friend of mine left the, Do the Dodgers game in 1988 right before Kirk Gibson hit his walk-off homer. He heard the roar of the crowd while he's in the parking lot. You gotta stay in the game. You gotta allow God to keep preparing you for what's next. Preparing Christ's witnesses. That's the first pillar of gospel ministry. It's about prepping Christ's witnesses. I mean, a believer saved by Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, understands gospel truth, able to come alongside other believers in unity in matters of conscience and other things, and, and is willing to take correction and be corrected and do the same for others and, and be prepared for life in a hostile world because your allegiance has been changed. You were bought by Christ. 
You're taught by devoted followers. You're living together in community. You're moving out in unity. You want to reach the world. What did Paul do for the Romans? He built them up in the faith, prepared them with solid doctrine. He exhorted them to a life of dependence and obedience on Christ. This is not just about going and doing something for Jesus alone. Paul is not saying here, hey, here's what I did all by myself as an apostle. He had many coworkers, he had many helpers. People with him, people surrounding him, people supporting him. God just using his people for his purposes. It was a community effort in harmony, in, in doing what Jesus said to do. What did Jesus say to do? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then he says, and be assured I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. So Jesus is sending his people out and saying, you go and, and lead people to Christ and help them grow. Let them show their faith in baptism. Call them to obey the Bible. And remember, I'm with you. The first pillar here is preparing Christ's witnesses. Let's move on to the second pillar. Presenting Christ's worshipers to God. Verse 16. Presenting Christ's worshipers to God. In verse 16, he says this. He says, I'm a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that, here's the big so that, the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God had given Paul a vital part to play in the fulfillment of his saving promises to reach the nations. And he says, I'm a minister. Literally, that's the idea of serving God in public worship, but it includes the idea of being a priest. He says, I'm a priest to the Gentiles. I'm offering the Gentiles up to God. Psalm 98.3 tells us this, that God has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It's going to the Gentiles too. In Acts 13, 46 and 47, Paul and Barnabas are trying to reach the Jews and they boldly say, it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And they quote Isaiah 49, verse 6, and Isaiah 42, verse 6, which says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They quoted that and said, God commanded us to do this. And so Paul, pointing out his priestly service, reminds me of Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9, which says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It reminds me of Revelation 1.6 that says that he has made us a kingdom and priests so we have access to God. That's the priesthood of believers. We're set apart for his service. And Paul is saying that he wants to offer up the Gentiles to God as an acceptable, sanctified offering. It was his ministry to present to God an offering of a multitude of Gentile converts. 
Isaiah 66, verse 20 says, They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Paul knew he had a priestly commission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Think about what he did. Through Christ, he starts all these Gentile churches where none had existed. What's a priest responsible to do in the biblical sense? To work on behalf of God, not himself. A steward. Paul is not saying, hey, I want everyone to follow me. He doesn't want them beholden to him. He wants them to live by faith in the triune God. In fact, verse 16 is a, is a Trinitarian verse. He calls himself a minister of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, ministering the gospel of God, the Father, first person of the Trinity, and, and wants to present an offering that's sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Because God the Father initiates the plan of redemption through election. Son carries out the will of the Father as a substitute. The Holy Spirit regenerates all whom the Father has chosen, brings them to a knowledge of the truth and a forgiveness of sins in Christ. We need to learn about this second pillar. Gospel ministry is about presenting worshipers to God, not gathering them to us. They are not our disciples. They are owned by Christ. They're not our people. They're God's people. Think about what a Christian's to do. Present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, right? Everyone who trusts Christ's sacrifice for sin fully yields themselves to him. And what do you do with others? You, you present others to God. You drive people to trust Jesus, not you. We're, we're fellow travelers. We're pilgrims. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we are not to foster unhealthy dependence in our discipleship. This is not the idea of we're leading people to depend on you and me. We're leading people to depend on Jesus Christ. Imagine if you broke your leg, and I wanted to help you, and so I, I took you to the, the, the hospital, and the doctor, you know, resets the bone and, and puts a cast on your leg. And I carry you in, and then they put a cast on you, so I carry you out. And then I take you home. And then I keep carrying you every day. And I insist that, that you have to let me help you with everything. And even when the cast comes off and the doctor says, now you need to start rehabbing, you need to get into physical therapy here, I say, no, no, I'm going to insist on carrying you everywhere. And I make you depend on me. You would not grow stronger. You would not recover. Some people look at discipleship like that. They treat discipleship like that. The desired effect of the gospel upon a believer's life should be that we are ready and willing and able to engage deeply in a life of worship and of fellowship and of discipleship. Well, it's where we make disciples for Christ, not our disciples. So we prepare Christ's witnesses in gospel ministry. Then we present Christ's worshipers to God, always pointing them to Christ. And look at pillar number three. Pillar number three in verses 17 and 19 is this idea of praising Christ's work. Praising Christ's powerful work. In verse 17, he says, in Christ Jesus, literally through Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He's saying, I'm going to boast. I'm going to glory. 
But Paul did not boast in himself. He never boasted in himself. He only boasted in what God did through him. One of my kids just recently uh, created a piece of art that was chosen from their high school to, um, to be put in a, in a local college art show. And so we go to the, to the reception thing, and it turns out she wins an award, like upcoming, one of two awards. And, and here's the thing. Her, her, her art was about the sanctity of life. It's called 10 Centimeters. And it was about the sanctity of life, and she wrote this paper up about how this This is on her heart a lot, and so she wanted to express herself in that way. But she gave the glory to God. She didn't say, yeah, that was me, and I'm such a good artist. See, Paul never boasted in himself, only in what Christ did through him. Look at verse 18. He says, I will never venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul is caught up in the riptide of the will of God, undertow of goodness, uh, the saving stream of the shed blood of Christ, these, the nations are hearing about the gospel, and, and the Lord Jesus preceded him all of his work. When he's in jail in Corinth, Jesus appears to him and says, I have many people in this city. You are an instrument of mine. Paul is, is praising Jesus' work. And he said, it, it's, the work is to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So here's the Roman believers who are mostly Gentiles. So they were Paul's responsibility too. God called Paul to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles and urge them to obedience of faith. The bookends of Romans, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26. The nations would come to obedience of faith. And he says, it happened by word and deed and by the power of signs. Verse 19, the power of signs and wonders, where God is authenticating the gospel. And he's, he's authenticating really the authority of Jesus. Just like in Luke 5 where it says Jesus is the only one with authority to forgive sins. And Matthew 28 when Jesus said all authority has been given to me. But also through Paul, God is authenticating the the ministry and the authority of the apostles. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verses 3 through 4, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and that's recorded in the Gospels, and it was attested to us by those who heard, and and really talking about the book of Acts there, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He says it's by the power of the Spirit of God that this happened. He's praising the work of God. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And here Paul is saying, I did this gospel ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. This big circle, 1,400 miles of territory. Illyricum being the furthest place he went. He preached all around the circle from Jerusalem to, to northern Greece. He gave a testimony to people in the whole area. And then he's able to say, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
Do you notice something here? He's not the central figure. Jesus is. He's showing us the proper way to do gospel ministry. He's showing us the proper way to do ministry. He's showing us the proper way to do missionary work. Paul isn't the most important person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation is Christ. The supremacy is Christ. The preeminence is Christ's. He says, what Christ has done through me, all eyes on Christ. He performs the work. He uses Paul as an instrument of grace, just like he uses you as a believer as an instrument of grace. Yielded believers are instruments of grace. See, gospel ministry is not about praising and showcasing ourselves. It is about praising Christ's works. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us to to will and do his good pleasure. Paul was fixated on the works of Christ, what Christ had accomplished through him. Think about it. Over and over again, as we're in the midst of serving the Lord, we should be praising Christ's works. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is important for us to grasp gospel ministry. You're in the middle of the sanctifying process as the Holy Spirit is using you and and deepening you. You need to keep praising the work of Christ and not just stop. What, What happens is we start thinking, wow, you know, I did that. There must be something special about me that made that happen. And this is what happens so often. God brings about this this great victory and we parade around as if we did something special and we brought it out and then we end up living in the past and remembering that one thing that we did. We settle for being one-hit wonders when God wants to do wonder after wonder after wonder. You take the glory, that will be the end of the story. You rest on your laurels, you're going to find you get dirt and rust and worms and dust. Our purpose in life is to glorify God, not ourselves. Let me ask you, how are you tempted? In whatever ministry you do, to influence people in ways that benefit you rather than them. You've got to remember Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's grace, it's, it's mercy, it's every blessing from God. It's like the song we sing, to this I hold, my, own, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. As you do gospel ministry, preparing Christ's witnesses and presenting Christ's worshipers to God and praising Christ's work, just keep praising Christ's work. And let's look at pillar four, verses 20 and 21, pillar four. Proclaiming Christ's word. Paul is doing the pioneering work here, holy ambition. He says in verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He wants to preach the gospel. 
And he wants to do it where Christ has not already been named, literally where he hasn't already been preached. That doesn't mean that everyone gets saved in the locale, but that people are already preaching the gospel there. He says, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. Paul wanted to reach those who had never heard of Christ. He had the heart of an evangelist, right? Now, if you're called to be a shepherd, you're going to need to build on someone else's work. Uh, For the last 13 plus years, I've been building on the work of faithful men and women here at Grace Church of Orange who have poured out their lives for gospel ministry. And I didn't show up and just start doing something new. I just kept doing the same thing everyone's been doing. What did Paul say? Verse 21, as it is written, Isaiah 52, 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will will understand. So his call to preach where Christ has not been acknowledged is in Isaiah 52, 15, one of the servant songs in which Gentiles who haven't heard will hear and see through the ministry of the servant of the Lord. The, The Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 52, 15 reads this way. So he will sprinkle many nations. Gentiles are being intended there. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they will see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. A lot of this is about the second coming of Christ. But it's being applied to gospel ministry, evangelism, all the way through all the ages until Christ returns. But what we need to grasp right now is, gospel ministry is about proclaiming the gospel of Christ about giving out the perfect word of God. It's not about giving our opinions. It is not about us crushing people with legalistic demands that we we come up with. It is where we yield the sword of the spirit and we are careful and precise with it. Where we proclaim it, not push it. It's like a sharp knife, it's not a sledgehammer. It's like a scalpel, not a meat cleaver. You cut the word of God straight. You don't chop people up with it. You don't twist the truth. You do careful exegesis with compassionate application. You give the word of life. My job as a pastor, read it, explain it, apply it. Anybody who's listening, when I'm listening to a sermon or I'm giving a sermon, my my job after giving it is hear it, believe it, and obey it. As James 1 says, we're to receive the word implanted, able to save our souls. We're to be hearers of the word, and, and not just hearers, but doers of the word, so that everyone goes and does what we put up on the walls here. We're a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel. So you go out wherever God has sent you and proclaim, preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ to whoever comes in your path. Where we preach the word, where we, where we pioneer, but we also continue work that's already happening. And we plant and we cultivate. And, and remember this, there's not any field on earth until Jesus returns that's already covered and already already uh, reached and here's why there are a lot of fields that we thought were reached but have been laying fallow for so long because for so long they were neglected everyone said oh Europe has already reached you've been there recently there are former gospel hot spots that are now dark you got to keep going back to the fields yeah, do the work God sets before you. Trust God to use his word. I love what Luther said. 
I didn't do anything. The word did it all. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, look, you receive the word of God for what it really is. It's the word of God that does its work in us who believe. The goal of gospel mission and ministry is that many would be saved and sanctified and glorified. Think about it. People that were formerly lost, like you and I, but are now found by Jesus, we get this compassionate, passionate heart to reach people that are lost so that they would be found and be saved and sanctified and glorified. And we know there is no way it will come about unless God brings it about. And we know it takes hard work, humanly speaking, in the strength that God provides. But you know what the number one, the number one thing you need to understand about gospel ministry is? It's focused on Jesus. And I I know that's a really obvious point. We have to keep remembering that. It's focused on Jesus. There's this interesting, peculiar story in Luke chapter 7 where there's this centurion and he's a Gentile and and he has a servant who's near death. And the centurion hears that Jesus is is strong and, and heals people. So he sends some rulers of the Jews to come and heal his servant. You might be familiar with this story. And they plead with Jesus. The servants, the Jews, plead with Jesus. And here's what they say. This man is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation and he, and he built our synagogue. And it says that Jesus went with them. And so the Jews are saying about this, this man, he's worthy for Jesus to do something for him. And here's what the centurion starts thinking. And, and he's thinking, and he's thinking to himself, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. You see, we profile people unfairly, don't we? Um, Worthy, by the way, when they said he was worthy, it means he's deserving. He was weighed and found worthy. We think that people are worthy or not to hear the gospel because they are good enough or not. That's a twisting of gospel priorities. It's a twisting, uh, it's a denial, really, of gospel power. None are worthy. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So this centurion starts thinking, Who am I to ask Jesus? And so Jesus is on the way to the house. He's not far away. And the centurion sends some friends out and says to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. And it's interesting because Jesus is like, wow, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. He didn't go to the house. The servant was healed. But what is it said in the Bible about Jesus? We heard it sung beautifully last week. We're going to sing it in a few moments. He is worthy. Who's worthy? Jesus is worthy. The number one thing you need to understand about gospel ministry is it's focused on Jesus who is worthy. He alone is worthy. So stop worrying about yourself. It's about him. Jesus is the life of every believer and the sufficiency of every believer. He is our praise. So we want to exalt Jesus Christ. Believers, do you want to exalt Jesus Christ? Do you want to? Yes. Go and make disciples. Understand gospel ministry. Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, your life is significant and God wants to use you for his glory. Amen?
let's, let's pray then. Lord, thank you for uh, the fact that you bless people even through us and you want to use us for your glory. I pray, Lord, by your grace that we would preach your word and praise your work and present worshipers to you and prepare witnesses for you. We wouldn't just know it, but we would live it and love it and just be so engaged, so engaged in, in, in your gospel ministry, all for your glory. And we pray in, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org. Thank you.